There's three telltale signs that you might be having too much caffeine. One is if your thoughts are kind of racing. Caffeine is supposed to help you focus. If caffeine is not doing that, if it's doing the opposite of that, and you feel like you have like scattered thoughts, it's probably too much caffeine. The second one to look for is a racing heartbeat. Caffeine mildly affects your heart rate, similar to going up three flights of stairs. Like it shouldn't kill you, but you might feel it. You might feel a little shortness of breath. So you can start to notice, and a lot of people are wearing Fitbits these days. So you can look at your Fitbit and see if you're higher than normal. That would be a second easy sign to look at. And then the third sign would be those jitters. If you're actually feeling some slight trembling, it's usually your hands. Sometimes it could be like not able to hold still with your legs. Like if you start tapping your foot incessantly, that's another sign that maybe you've had too much caffeine. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. If you have specific questions or concerns, we encourage you to consult a health professional in your local area. From Changelog Media, this is Brain Science, a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to transform our lives? I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Dr. Marielle Reese. Well, I am so excited today because for today's episode, we have our very first guest, and it's on a topic I think that we all love and care about, caffeine. So let me introduce to you all Danielle Rath, otherwise known as the Green-Eyed Guide. Hello and welcome. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. You said everybody loves this, Mary. I would say so in our Slack. We have a Slack community, everybody. So if you're listening to this, we have a Slack community. You can join that, and it's totally free. But, like, we dropped the note that, like, we're talking to a caffeine expert, and, like, everybody came, like, as if we had honey and they were bees. (laughs) They did. They did. Like, ooh, everybody got excited. Dropped their notes. Everybody has nuanced ways they use caffeine, too, whether it's tea, energy drinks, which we'll go into all the details of that, but like everybody has an opinion on caffeine, essentially. I myself have a gigantic cup of coffee in front of me right now, so clearly I have an opinion as well, but we all use it in, as Meryl says, adaptive and maladaptive ways, so yeah, that's fun. So Daniel and I actually go way back. We don't need to talk about how far back (laughs) we go, but I will say I knew Danielle as an adolescent, (laughs) So Daniel and I actually met. She might have funny stories about me, which, again, we don't need to go into. (laughs) (laughs) When I coached Danielle as a gymnast, as an adolescent, and so we met when I lived and was working on my doctorate in graduate school in Southern California. And so after... I moved away and continued on my degree. We Our paths intersected again when I got involved with Beachbody or started working out again after having my second child. And so it was super exciting because Danielle worked in product development relative to some of the awesome products that Beachbody has, which helped me get healthy after having my daughter. So 
Danielle, as far as I understand, you have always loved sort of science. As I know, (laughs) Danielle was very much sort of like to stay within the lines. Yes, yes. That's a nice way to put it. Thank you. (laughs) But as far as I understand, what got you started studying caffeine was actually more so around when you went to college and that you weren't necessarily a fan of coffee, dare I say. Yes, yes, absolutely. And even to this day, my policy with coffee is the same as my policy with alcohol. I like it if it tastes like something else. (laughs) That's awesome. So I never really liked coffee and I don't even like tea. And along came these energy drinks that was a source of caffeine that actually tasted good, that had roughly the same amount of caffeine as a standard cup of coffee. And that was my saving grace all throughout college, all throughout grad school, when I was juggling full-time schoolwork with part-time jobs and all of the stress that goes along with that. Energy drinks were my saving grace, as well as my nerdy passion. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that is interesting and why I really wanted to talk with you is because I think there's so much misinformation relative to energy drinks in particular. And so for our listeners, if we can understand not just energy drinks, but also caffeine and go, you know, is it okay? Can I use it? Or in what ways does it work well? And in what ways does it actually, you know, hinder me from doing the good work or the work I want to do? Yeah, I think one of the trickiest things about studying caffeine and energy drinks is that there's always been this temptation to bucket everything into safe or dangerous, or all energy drinks have this much caffeine, this much sugar, and these ingredients. And the challenge is that if you look at the products on the marketplace, whether they're powders or pills or liquids that have caffeine in them, they're all different. And so it's always been very difficult to address questions about caffeine safety or you know, putting butter in your coffee or do energy drinks kill people because there's so much diversity in this field of caffeinated products. And some things that people think are very, very dangerous, like Red Bull, are actually weak sauce and less scary to me professionally than some of the drinks that people have never heard of or drinks that people love like bang. So there's a disparity in terms of the consumer perception and what I believe as a scientist is actually the biggest threat. Yeah. So can you tell me like what all drinks have you sort of looked at in, in greater depth? Oh, I've looked at so many of them. So there's always, I think in 2006, there was like 500 energy drinks that came out alone that year. So I can never keep up with the new energy drinks coming out. I have a lot of fans on Instagram, thank goodness, that will send me pictures of the new stuff. And I'm always like lagging behind. I don't have my finger on that pulse, but I'm always looking at the ingredients. So ingredient trends like branch chain amino acids, combining creatine and caffeine, which is don't do that. Um, CoQ10, uh, taurine, carnitine, B vitamins. I'm looking more at what these ingredients do, how they interact with caffeine, and are these drinks that are hopping on board with these trends providing a big enough dose to actually be effective? Or are they just sprinkling it on the label to be like clickbait, like to look attractive without actually doing anything? Buzzwords. Yes. Yes, buzzwords, exactly. You mentioned diversity. So that means is caffeine generally the main vehicle that they're selling? Yeah. 
And then these other things are like cargo culting onto or being added to essentially. And your, your inability to like really classify them is because, you know, what comes with caffeine often is so diverse that you're not sure or able to pin down the right kind of research that says, okay, this is how it performs unanimously because caffeine has sidecars all the time. Yes, absolutely. Because there's two important points to that. One is that in most of these drinks, caffeine is doing all the work. Like if you take this stereotypical energy drink, Red Bull, you know, Red Bull is the stereotype everyone thinks of because it's the number one brand. Red Bull has caffeine, taurine, B vitamins. Caffeine is doing 90% of the work. Taurine is maybe affecting you. Carnitine is maybe affecting you. B vitamins aren't really affecting you unless you're deficient. So caffeine is doing all the work here. But then you have another energy drink that has caffeine, guarana, herba mate, yohimbe extract, all these other things. So how do you call both of them an energy drink? And then on the converse, if there's something that has caffeine from green tea and B vitamins and a lot of sugar, can you call that an energy drink? Because I mean, it's not exactly a tea, it's not a soda. Right. So this is why I often use the term caffeinated beverage as opposed to energy drinks, because I feel like that's a more inclusive term that captures everything in the umbrella, the stereotypes and the energy drinks in disguise, as I like to call them. I mean, because just taking B12 vitamin shots can be considered energy boosters, like that, it boosts your energy, your thoughts, right, your mental clarity, I mean, just doing that, people do that just for energy is what I'm trying to say. Like they use it for those reasons. Yeah, there's a lot of confusion around whether B12 shots actually work. There's a huge placebo effect to that where people expect that B12 gives you energy and so people feel that energy, but this is perceived energy. So this is the energy rated on a scale, which is subjective. So it's it's hard to right. actually know if it's the placebo effect or if it's really B12. The people that have gotten energy from B12, like JFK, Margaret Thatcher, those people actually had an enzymatic deficiency. So they needed B12 shots. So their need actually drove that trend of B12, high doses of B12 in drinks and having those B12 shots or supplements. But the science behind whether or not that actually gives you a perceived boost of energy is really inconsistent. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that because what you're getting at is really genetic differences, right? And that like people's genes play a role in the way in which caffeine affects them, right? And that can be highly varied. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's everything from how quickly your body metabolizes caffeine to how sensitive you are to anxiety. There are people that have polymorphisms or differences in their receptors or A2 receptors in their head. So the way that adenosine affects them in their brain is different. And the way that they are naturally more anxious is different. And so they're more susceptible to caffeine because of those genetic differences. So that's that. And then there's caffeine sensitivity, which makes some people like my husband, super sensitive to caffeine. He has a cup of green tea and he's running around the house like crazy. Whereas me, my sensitivity is a lot lower. I'm a lot less sensitive. So I need a lot of a stronger dose. Does that mean you build up a tolerance over time or is that sort of just like some of that's built in, some of that's, you know, built up? They are related, but they're slightly different. So your caffeine sensitivity will always be the same. You will always have no effect on caffeine if you're not a responder and you will always have a high tolerance if your sensitivity is low. You can't change your sensitivity, but you can change your tolerance. So if you're someone that always has negative 
side effects to having caffeine, whether it's from soda or chocolate or tea, then your tolerance isn't going to change that very much. If you're someone that can have a cup of coffee and you feel that alertness, then your tolerance means that having a cup of coffee every single day for a year, you might need two cups of coffee. You might need three cups of coffee. So I would say tolerance is kind of like a fine tune on your sensitivity. Your sensitivity is where you start, and then you can kind of fine tune that up or down by building a tolerance. So I'm so Mm -hmm. glad you mentioned that, Danielle, because (laughs) in my preliminary research of this, like understanding how we metabolize Um, caffeine is really big. And so the sensitivity is one aspect of that. Tolerance is another. But I also found drug interactions can also make a difference, right? Can you talk Mm -hmm. to us about sort of certain drugs, right, can affect it? Yes. There's a certain class of drugs that I always forget. It's not like the statin inhibitors, but it's like basically the things that are supposed to control your blood pressure and your heart rate. If you're on those type of drugs, then they can interfere with caffeine in a negative way. Oh, really? Yeah. So you're not supposed to have caffeine if you're already on medication for blood pressure or heart rate. And so that gets at too the way in which caffeine can affect your heart, right? And how we hear some of these things over like, oh, this person had three Red Bulls and you know they went into cardiac arrest. Yes. And there's always this tendency to blame energy drinks when someone passes or is hospitalized because of a caffeine overdose. But a lot of times people digging into the research have found that person has a genetic something in their heart that made them more susceptible, that the dose of caffeine they had wouldn't have affected someone without that genetic disposition the same way. So is there any sort of scientific way in which people know, or is it like about themselves, or is it literally just like trial and error? Unfortunately, it's trial and error. Oh boy. (laughs) I think that some of those DNA, uh, like the 23andMe and some of the DNA tests. Yes. Thank you. I think some of those might have the ability to tell you if you have a sensitivity to caffeine, but I mean, I would say just save your money and always nurse your caffeine. If you're not sure how caffeine affects you, don't start by having three Red Bulls or five no-dose pills. Like, you can figure out how caffeine affects you by going slow and not having a huge dose right off the bat. This is something we always prescribe, too, is like be your own scientist, essentially, yeah. is what you're saying. Like, Because that's going to be more reliable in whatever 23andMe has to say. Right. So I guess getting into that, what kind of effects if you were being that scientist and you were doing some of these things, taking this advice and you were nursing caffeine, not so much energy drinks, but caffeine drinks, as you say, what are the effects that sort of give you indications that you're on the bad side of sensitivity to caffeine? Like what are those feelings, jittery, anxious, things like that? Exactly. There's three telltale signs that you might be having too much caffeine. One is if your thoughts are kind of racing. Caffeine is supposed to help you focus. If caffeine is not doing that, if it's doing the opposite of that and you feel like you have like scattered thoughts, it's probably too much caffeine. The second one to look for is a racing heartbeat. Caffeine mildly affects your heart rate, similar to going up three flights of stairs. Like it shouldn't kill you, but you might feel it. You might feel a little shortness of breath. So you can start to notice, and a lot of people are wearing Fitbits these days. So you can look at your Fitbit and see if you're higher than normal. That would be a second easy sign to look at. And then the third sign would be those jitters, 
if you're actually feeling some slight trembling, it's usually your hand. Sometimes it could be like not able to hold still with your legs. Like if you start tapping your foot incessantly, that's another sign that maybe you've had too much caffeine. Mm. And you mentioned genetic disabilities or genetic indicators to say adverse effects with caffeine. What about autoimmune disorders or things that re- regarding metabolism, things that people may have or not be aware of? Like almost everyone has some sort of thyroid skew towards the negative side. Uh, and I say when I say everyone, I mean everyone in America. Sure. Or someone that adopts the kind of diet we generally have here because we eat lots of unique weird things. And uh, there's a lot of thyroid issues or metabolism issues, obesity even. How does caffeine favor into those classification of people? Or is that too wide and diverse for you to, to drive into? It's a little wide and diverse. The areas that caffeine affects is not typically autoimmune disorders or even like obesity. To my knowledge, there's not a direct interaction between caffeine and these things. One of the things that I found that was super interesting was that caffeine's an alkaloid to like geek out for a moment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? And that morphine and nicotine are also alkaloids. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Does that make any difference? I mean, is that sort of like disconcerting or in what way sort of is morphine different than caffeine or what is the mechanism of action that then sort of works on our bodies to sort of stimulate or bring increase our attention or stimulate what sort of in our brain? So the way that caffeine works has more to do with its specific shape than its class as an alkaloid. Okay. There have, as far as I know, I mean, there, there's always new research. It's so hard to right? keep up with this stuff. Always. <laughs> yes. So initially, a lot of people were looking at, is this why caffeine is so addictive? Is it addictive because it shares the same class as morphine or as some of these other alkaloids that have these addictive properties? But that research is leaning more towards the no. Okay. That it, caffeine is not addictive in that same way. And the way that caffeine helps you stay alert or the way that caffeine works is because its shape is so similar to something called adenosine that it basically sits in adenosine's throne and keeps adenosine from doing its job. Adenosine can't do its job unless it's sitting on its throne and caffeine's sitting there blocking it. So adenosine's job is supposed to like calm us down. Like I have this filter on my phone that turns things this nice shade of red when it's time to simmer down and get ready to go to sleep. Adenosine's like that. It's like, yo, it's been a long day. Let's start relaxing. Let's get ready for sleep. But caffeine sits in that spot. So you never get that calm down signal. Instead, you're like, woo, more work. Let's go. Let's go. Right. I love this. And I quote, you said, caffeine blocks adenosine, which prevents adenosine from sending you. You are getting sleepy signals. But after a while, your body realizes caffeine is blocking adenosine and makes more. So it takes more caffeine to feel the same energy boost, right? Yes. This is tolerance, right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) This is where the tolerance comes into play. Exactly. So this is why going, you know, my standard cup of coffee when I'm tired because I didn't sleep or, you know, God forbid, you know, my sleep was interrupted with a newborn. Yes. That it's like, wait, (laughs) wait, I need more. I need more. And so that might be to some degree why it's confusing for people relative to addiction, right? Yes. Like, well, I got to, and there is tolerance is a facet of addiction, right? You need more to cultivate the same effects. Yes. But that doesn't necessarily mean 
caffeine is addicting. It just means we like it. Yeah. Right. Well, what is addiction then in that case? I mean, like what you like is what you, you know, I mean, how do you classify addiction when it comes to caffeine? Mariel, you probably can answer this better than me, though. So I'll let you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm like, because when is it ever that simple when it comes to our brain? Right. Yes. It's not. Yeah. There's multiple systems working and to say, well, adenosine, that's one thing, but dopamine is another, right? Yes. So I can talk about other drugs and how they actually burn out dopamine receptors and sort of, you know, similar to this adenosine Mm -hmm. in going, it blocks so that dopamine just keeps giving you the hit over and over, which is why you never will have the same sort of effect using the drug as you did that first time when you had a pure, you know, altered state, right? Right. In our pre-call, kind of talking about this subject, you mentioned chasing the ghost. Yeah. Yes. Well, that relative to addiction and going, you know, like that's a commonly used phrase to go, once you've used, you're never going to be able to catch that ghost again because you had an unaltered brain prior to the you know, when you first used whatever substance. Mariel, didn't you also use an acronym in a previous podcast? It was like CAR or something. Yeah. So I do like Q craving response reward. So Q anticipated response reward. But so there's multiple systems involved with our reward system and adenosine is not dopamine, right? Yes. So (laughs) caffeine does, I mean, I, I remember listening to that podcast and having to like pull over and take notes in my phone because oh boy. <laughs> I love it. Because caffeine, one of the many things it does is it boosts our dopamine. So this is related to why having a cup of coffee feels so good. In addition to that mental aspect of this reward, like, yes, I've survived another morning with the kids. I'm going to have my cup of coffee. You feel like that's a reward. So there's that aspect of it, as well as the actual signaling of the dopamine that caffeine is upregulating. Right. So it's interesting is relative to the behavioral conditioning, right? So we practice like we are what we repeatedly do. Yes. And that our brain loves the familiar. It's like, oh, my cup of coffee. So there's multiple systems at play when I'm like going for right. my caffeine, which is yes. part of why it's so hard to stop because it's like, but it feels so good. Yes. Right. Like some people have routines and like mine is has generally been one cup of coffee a day now. I, I don't know what happened. I used to be two or more. Maybe I'm lazy or busy. I'm not sure which one it is. I'll probably favor on lazy. I'm busy. <laughs> <laughs> almost out of myself there. Nice Freudian slip there. <laughs> yes, an accident there. But, you know, my day begins with a cup of coffee. Yeah. And it and, and so is it addiction? So going back to the question, when is it addiction or not? Well, I don't think so because that's my habit loop. I run that that play. My day kicks off my brain. All the focus, all the things come into play and say, now it's time to work. Now it's time to go get busy and do our things, whatever it is. And that's my go signal. That's the... That's the shot in the in the air and the runners run. Yeah, so it was interesting speaking to that because when I did a period of sort of eliminating a lot of foods, I did this elimination diet and ca- I had to get rid of caffeine. But what it revealed was actually a way in which I use caffeine was even more so a reward to go like, oh, if you do these other things at the end of your day, Marielle, you can get this awesome coffee. You can have your latte that you love so much, 
right? So at mm-hmm. that point, I w- it wasn't for the caffeine benefits. It was for the pleasure circuitry. Yes, absolutely. Which I was like, hey, that- <laughs> Mariel, what are you doing? Like, right? My nice internal dialogue I just made external. Yeah. And, and truthfully, like lattes, like if you're going to Starbucks or a decent high-class coffee place, in many cases, these things aren't just simply coffee. They're desserts. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like you get a, a latte, you're going to put like, caramel syrup in there potentially you know you may not but there's the temptation to add you know with brevet or different things like that to like spice it up and it's not just simply caffeine or coffee or the reward now it's like it's kind of a dessert in some cases which gets into the problem of caffeine and sugar you must like seriously read my mind because (laughs) i'm like (laughs) yes like it was really interesting so there's research from the harvard school of public health found that there was six genetic variants associated with the way in which people metabolize and form an addiction to caffeine. Okay. And so of this 120,000-person study, there are two genes related to how caffeine is metabolized, two genes associated with how we feel rewarded from ingesting caffeine, and two genes that regulate fat and sugar in the bloodstream as a response to caffeine. Right? So sugar and caffeine, like there's all of these interwoven things that make such a significant difference. Yes, absolutely. I remember reading that study, but a lot of the details have kind of gone out of my mind, replaced by other stuff. (laughs) Yeah, but every energy drinker, any sort of caffeine, caffeinated beverage has a different sort of intermix of caffeine, juice, and sugar, right? Yes, and carbonation. And carbonation, right? So can you talk to our listeners about like, how do those things matter? What are those variables? So the most important thing to keep in mind is that if you are drinking caffeine, you probably are doing that to feel more alert. If you have caffeine and sugar, your goal will backfire. That caffeine will not be as efficient at helping you stay awake if there's sugar involved, because the sugar will create a blood sugar spike and a blood sugar fall. And that crash is often confused with an energy drink crash or a caffeine crash, but really caffeine doesn't do anything quickly. It takes a while to kick in and it takes a long time to leave. So if you're feeling this energy spike and then crash, it's because whatever you had had a lot of sugar, which is behind this, this, fall. And it's interesting. So this is why I never drink caffeine and sugar. I try and get my sugar-free syrups. If I go to a coffee store and I stick to the sugar-free energy drinks, because in a few different studies, they found people that had both caffeine and sugar were more tired after two hours than the people that had caffeine alone. So that would also play into anything. So right, if I'm adding sugar to my coffee or, you know, latte or frappuccinos, or things like that, right? That yes. it's, it's not really going to cultivate the benefits that I want it to. Yes. In some cases, or many cases, the buzz is from the yes. sugar. Right? Right. It gets you really, I mean, when you put, I'm just guessing, like 80 milligrams or more of sugar into your body, that's probably conservative on those kind of drinks. It's probably a lot more than that. I think the American Heart Association says that Adult men can have, I think, 36 grams of sugar in a day, and adult women can have 26 grams of sugar in a day. And I've seen energy drinks that have 68 grams of organic 
natural sugar. But sugar. But this is like three days worth of sugar for you. Mm -hmm. And they have high doses of caffeine too. If you're trying to be awake, all you need is the caffeine. Right. Let the caffeine wake you up, not the sugar. So are you advocating for brown coffee then? Or should I say black coffee? Because I know some people out there who are like coffee snobs will say, this is brown coffee, not black coffee. So are you advocating for just plain coffee? I'm advocating for energy drinks that don't have sugar or a high amount of caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> right? No, but but sugar is a huge variable in that. And we know that. I mean, I find it humorous and we'll see the long-term benefits because my kids have stopped asking for desserts. They just ask oh, for nice. sugar. They're oh, like, no. well, <laughs> right? They're like, well, I've already had my two sugars for today or whatever. Like little sugar cubes? No, but like they're, they actually, because I, I feel like education is so important and going yes. what we ingest and, and managing that relative to what we're trying to optimize for. And so helping even my kids understand that sugar affects them and that, you know, what is it that 25, 26, 36 milligrams. And yet, I mean, what is a Coke have in like just a regular 16 ounce something? I mean, more than that. Yeah. More yeah. than the daily allotment. Yeah. Some drinks are pretty bad. Yeah. Right? And so energy drinks, it's not uncommon to have 25, 26, 35 milligrams in, in one. Grams. It's grams of sugar, right. milligrams oh, of caffeine. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah. Grams. Thank you. This is why <laughs> we have the scientist. <laughs> no yeah. worries. I said milligrams too. <laughs> no, that's <bad>. all right. <laughs> grams, not milligrams. Yeah. So, I mean, this problem of having high sugar with caffeine, whether the caffeine is high or low, is a problem that I am observing in energy drinks as well as teas. Like um, one of the popular teas, I think it's Snapple or Lipton. I mean, you would think it's healthy because it's tea, but it has so much sugar that you're better off having an energy drink with no sugar like this Yerbae, Yerbae, you know, that has no sugar, but it has its caffeine from a natural source, which is Yerba Mate. So like there's so many alternatives. Even if you don't like energy drinks, there's these other caffeinated beverages, right, that aren't exactly coffee, black or brown, and there aren't tea, black or green. It's just other sources of caffeine that don't come with that sugar because this high sugar problem is in all these caffeinated beverages, not just the energy drinks. Which speaks to the motivation factor. This is one thing I said to Mary, like, what is the motivation behind these food manufacturers to create these drinks? It seems like you may be aware of some that have good intentions for the consumer, which is the person drinking it or eating it or consuming it or whatever, to have the effects intended by taking in caffeine or potentially sands, sugar, or whatever other things are the sidecar with it to, to do what it's supposed to do or what you desire to do. Whereas like maybe not calling out Red Bull because their brand is so well known, but brands like that, they're in the energy drink space. They get this negative hype about who they are, what they do, their intentions. Like what is the motivation for most of the people in people, I say people, but companies involved in creating these products? Like what are their goals? So, I mean, obviously I can't speak to all companies, but speaking as a product developer, oftentimes you are forced to give the customer what they want as opposed to what you wish they wanted. So for example, I know as a food scientist that 36 grams is too many grams of sugar, but my boss knows that if I put 36 grams of sugar, the drink is going to sell. So oftentimes people are put in this situation where they have to put 
larger doses of caffeine, very large doses of sugar, because caffeine is bitter. Caffeine tastes horrible by itself. Like you need some kind of sweetener. And there are some people that would rather have natural sugar, even if it's two days worth, as opposed to artificial sweeteners. So you're kind of chasing how to make the product not taste horrible and how to make a product that sells. And oftentimes that runs into your personal beliefs or your personal motivation. But the end goal is to make a product that's good, that sells. And I feel like that's consistent across the industry. So if you delivered the drink with not 36 grams, you delivered it with, what would you desire it with? Like if you were making it for something you wanted them to in- 10 grams. In quotes, 10 grams. enjoy 10 grams. How would they then take it in? So if you delivered it the same way, but not 36 grams, but 10 grams instead, how would the consuming body that you're serving take that product? If you have 10 grams or less of sugar, that spike, that blood sugar spike won't be as dramatic. So you can still get the benefits of the caffeine without the defects or without the side effects of that increase in sugar. And there are plenty of caffeinated beverages, both teas and coffees and energy drinks that have tried to offer this healthy formula. They just don't sell as well. So, I mean, there are people out there that are trying to provide these, these options. And I mean, I think they taste pretty good. They've got 10 grams of sugar, maybe 80, a hundred milligrams of caffeine. They may or may not have artificial sweeteners. They may or may not have artificial colors, B vitamins, but like this is an energy drink but it's an alternative to the stereotype and it tastes good. It's just not as popular. Yeah. Are, are they reading the label or are they trying it, not liking it? Like what's the, what do you know about the deciding factor there? They're like, Oh, this has got 10 grams. I don't like it. Or is it, I taste it. I tried it. The effects didn't do what I thought it should do. I'm not going to buy that one anymore. Very few people actually read the labels. So it's more about okay. brand awareness. What have you heard that works? And if you're spending $3 for a caffeinated beverage, is that going to give you the most bang for your buck? Like, is this actually going to wake you up? And safety. Like, what do people hear on the news? So brand awareness and people's consumer preferences, what drinks they pick, is largely based on brand awareness more than reading labels. Mm -hmm. And so with that, is it necessary that, I mean, I don't see it on my cup of coffee relative to how much caffeine is in it. Is that right? Like there's nothing regulation. There's no regulation to say, hey, this has to go on like whatever you're drinking for how much caffeine is in it, right? This is a huge pet peeve of mine, actually. And I'm so glad you brought this up with the energy drink space or the caff. Well, more, more energy drinks than caffeinated beverages, the whole umbrella, right? Energy drinks have these guidelines from the American Beverage Association that says you should put a warning label on it. You should say how much caffeine is in your beverage from all sources, and you should try and limit the amount of caffeine in your drink. But coffees don't have to do that, and teas don't have to do that. And so a lot of people don't know that the Starbucks triple shot they're having has three times the caffeine as a Red Bull because coffees aren't beholden to the same guidelines. Wait, wait, wait. Say that again so that our listeners get it. Starbucks triple shot has three times the caffeine as a Red Bull. So how much caffeine is that? That's 225 milligrams, and Red Bull just has 80 Wow. Yes. That's that's a lot, lot, right? So what is recommended for how much, like how much caffeine can people have every day so that I know like what limits am I trying to stay within? 
So if you are pregnant or nursing, you can have 200 milligrams a day, which is two cups of coffee. If you're a healthy adult, no known predispositions, no known heart defects or any ailments like that, you can have 400 milligrams a day, which is four standard cups of coffee. Woohoo! Yes. <laughs> I'm good. Almost everybody listening is like, yes. yes. Thank you. You didn't tell me I was killing myself. I appreciate and that. I would recommend checking everything you drink and everything you eat through this website called Caffeine Informer. Caffeineinformer. Caffeineinformer.com has the largest database of foods and drugs and drinks like sodas, as well as coffees and teas and energy drinks. And they will tell you how much caffeine is in your drink, which is very helpful when you're getting a latte from Starbucks and you don't have the amount of caffeine on the label. Right. Do you know much about, I I guess, how much caffeine you get out of the beans? So what is it that makes... Like Starbucks isn't saying, maybe they are saying, I don't know. I'm assuming that they're using the same kind of bean to some degree, marginally some some sort of same bean that everybody else can get off the shelf except for they have, they probably own the farm, the bean being the coffee bean, right? It originated as a cherry, had a process to become the bean that you can actually grind up and turn into coffee by doing a process of, you know, sublimation and all this stuff to get the coffee out of it, whatever. All that science, you may know more about it than I do. I'm just... Speaking as a coffee geek, but the point is, is that there's ways you can extract the coffee out of the bean that extracts maybe more or less caffeine. They just doing a process that like gets the maximum amount of caffeine or is it just by nature that espresso is naturally more caffeinated? There's a lot of different factors that dictate how much caffeine you get out of the bean. I mean, and we're not just talking like Arabica versus Robusta beans. We're also talking the water temperature, which is why cold brew is a thing. Yeah. Cold brew, instead of getting the caffeine out, getting the caffeine out of the bean using hot temperatures and short times, they get the caffeine out using cold temperatures and very long times, like several days. Mm-hmm. And so that is affecting the amount of caffeine that's coming out of the bean. And there's also like French press is different and drip is different. This is why it's very difficult to generalize and say a standard cup of coffee has 100 milligrams because it's like, well, I mean, how did you make this cup of coffee? Is this the gas station or is this Starbucks? Because it's going to change. It's going to different. Process depicts a lot of stuff involved. Right. I was even surprised that in researching like Dunkin' Donuts decaf, decaf had a fair amount of caffeine yes it's not zero it's not zero (laughs) right so it makes it hard for consumers to figure out unless they're really deliberate right Mm -hmm. in going and that's just it it requires a filter no pun intended (laughs) (laughs) right well it requires some significant education to consume products these days that are whether it's like you're buying the bean, grinding yourself and choosing one of several processes or going to Starbucks or going to X. And like there's so much consumer education that just doesn't happen. And as you said, coffee is not coffee is not coffee. Like I can make a French press. I can make an espresso, same beans maybe yeah. even, and have different caffeine levels based upon the brew process. I mean the the – strongest two reasons why I do what I do are one, because people don't know how much caffeine they can have in a day, 400 milligrams. Two, they don't know how much caffeine is in what they're drinking. And again, 
this is why I prefer energy drinks because there's more of an industry standard to tell you on the label how much caffeine yeah. is in there versus if you get those glass bottles of Starbucks cold brew, which are really popular right now, people don't realize that cold brew is stronger and they don't realize how much caffeine is in that, that glass jar because it's a coffee and there's no regulation that says you have to label it. If it comes from a natural source, you, you aren't required to label it. So those are the two big gaps. What's the average for that one? Oh gosh, you're testing me. I think it's, I want to say it's 280. It's somewhere around 280 milligrams. I'd have to pull up. And that's because you tested or somebody tested it. It's not on their label, right? Because you said coffee doesn't have to label the caffeine amounts. No, it's not on the label. I think that was another caffeine informer to the rescue. (laughs) Yeah. We can fact check later. It doesn't have to be perfectly accurate, but some range. Is it 200, 300? Someone in that range is probably pretty accurate. Yeah, 200 to 300. It's high is the point. It's high, yeah. So can I ask, what about like certain drinks like Bang? We already know Bang as an energy drink is like the max right there for caffeine. Just based on the brand alone, it's got to be max, right? Like Bang, (laughs) of course. They did well. They did well on the branding yes, front. But yes. they also have like a keto coffee. So is that the same amount as the regular bang, which I believe is somewhere you've said 350 milligrams in one can? Oh, that's the one can I don't have up here next to me. I'm going to narrate for a second. Danielle is looking to her right. <laughs> she has a, a, a caffeine drink collection to her right. I'm assuming some of them are. No, they're all empty. They're all empty. <laughs> but she's referencing literal cans to her right. Yes. <laughs> and she's holding one and creaming it. <laughs> that may have come across. We'll see. So I don't have a can of Bang next to me because I hate giving them my money. <laughs> so I don't, I don't buy their products. But a typical can of Bang has 300 milligrams of caffeine. I'm not familiar with their keto coffee ones, but I think it's similar. Okay. Yeah. You know, the keto label, though, brings a lot with it, too. Like people who look for that label and buy those products are really scrutinizing to some degree unless they're just like on the bandwagon and they're just like if it says keto i eat it i consume it i take it whatever it's good you know so there's there's two different people that are involved with ketogenic based diets and ketogenic based products is educated reading the label or uneducated it says keto i can eat it (laughs) yes (laughs) those are the two camps right but i think about that with everything because like years ago it was the low fat right or low carb and then i don't look any further than that, right? And going, you you want to dig a little deeper if you want to know sort of if you're really being your own scientist and going, how does this affect me? What happens in my brain? And is it working for me? Yeah. I said to Mary on our prayer call, I said, uh, does it have a mom or a dad? The thing I'm consuming. And she laughed and I didn't, I didn't know why she laughed, but was, that's a thing, I guess, you know, when you consume something, you ask, did it have a mom or a right? dad? Right. Like, is it a plant or an animal of sorts? Like, did it have some sort of origin <laughs> or was it made by a human like that's not a mom or a dad that's that's manufactured right right i'm like doritos yeah. Dur- doritos <laughs> don't have a mom or a dad right well i mean this is like oreos are healthy because they're vegan <laughs> you know like <laughs> or a little plastic maybe no offense oreo <laughs> i know well so it, uh, this is why i have some trouble following labels because not everything that's natural is better than something synthetic. Like it's not inherently better because it's natural. And also things aren't inherently healthier for you because it fits a specific diet type. 
Yeah, one of the things that I appreciated was in your product development when you worked with Shakeology is that you actually had to go look up ingredients because they really care about where they source things from, right? And how then you put that together to make the product that you're selling. Absolutely. And it matters, doesn't it? (laughs) It really does. I mean, the biggest, best example of this is that if you take something like stevia, which is, you know, ah, like the best natural sweetener, right? I've tasted so many different samples of stevia in water, and some of them you get this awful bitter metallic taste. And some of them come from plants that can't pass an audit because they have poor cleanliness or poor manufacturing standards. So there's this beautiful natural plant that becomes this awful thing you don't want to eat because the supplier isn't following the manufacturing standards of cleanliness and good manufacturing. So we could like dive deep into all of these, right? Absolutely. Which I would love, but, you know, would require a lot more time. Yes, yes. But it's valuable, right? And teaching people to go, you know, examine what you're ingesting, right? Yes. I think you need to examine it and you also need to know where you're getting your things because weight loss supplements and workout supplements are among the most adulterated products in the market. So energy drinks often fall into that that place. And if you are just buying an energy drink or a supplement off the internet, you don't know if A, if they have good ingredients, B, if they're actually putting the right amounts of ingredients in there that they say on the label. So that's a certain amount of trust as well as uh, your own due diligence involved. Well, that leads us to regulation then, right? Like you mentioned supplements. That's generally in the vitamin department, which is totally unregulated. Like you can be rogue out there. And I think, I mean, the regulation is wishy-washy. Let's just say, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not there fundamentally. And so, you know, in this market, the FDA regulates, they don't regulate. What's the scenario between like regulation of these kinds of things? Like who says, no one says what you can do, what you can't do. Like in terms of the label of saying caffeine or not, same thing with supplements. It's like you can be, you can make a claim. I think as long as you can't say it saves your life, you can make a claim. With the supplement industry, I certainly learned a lot by working at Beachbody because Beachbody was so atypical in how much diligence they put into their ingredients and their suppliers. So working in the supplement industry was really eye-opening because we at Beachbody were doing so much hard work to guarantee our ingredients were safe and like actually what they said they were, they weren't adulterated. But there was a lot of people that weren't following that same adherence. (laughs) Right. So like any industry, right? There's variation. There's variation. Exactly. Like any industry, there's always a, a spectrum of people that are doing the right thing and people that are just making money for the wrong reasons. <laughs> so with supplements, the regulations are a lot more lenient. Of course, they have the same checklist of like, this must be on your label. And if you're putting an ingredient in your product, then you have to have this paperwork. But no one's going to ask you for that paperwork. And no one's going to go into a store and check your label beforehand. So basically, I feel like in the supplement industry, it's you do what you can until you get caught. So hopefully mm-hmm. you're doing the right thing. Well, that's why we need people like you, though. You're an advocate. <laughs> you're an advocate for the consumer, right? Yes, absolutely. I actually wrote a blog called Confessions of a Shady Supplement Supplier, which was like a, 
written in sarcasm to be like, this is how much stuff I can get away with. And the goal of that blog <laughs> right. post was trying to educate people on how to read labels and how to make sure you're buying from people that don't have red flags all over their website or their label. Well, I think that's what I love about our audience. Like we are trying to get people to think differently, you know, think about what they think about for one. And then two, you know, investigate what lies beneath. So what are the things in the things we're consuming, thinking, eating, et cetera. And then more so like there may not be strict regulations out there in terms of like, oh, this is what you can or what you can't do. But, you know, if we have advocates like you and companies like Beachbody, et cetera, and other different areas and that they do, they specialize in, can they be have a brand that's focused on, okay, we don't need regulation because we care so much about our, our customers that we are our own good regulators and our brand is built upon this trust. As you said before, like you have to trust them. Then you sort of like weed out the shady people because the brand alone stands the test and you got advocates who advocate for them. And so long as you got people that are like rooting for the consumer and not just the shareholders or stakeholders or the profit keepers of the businesses – like if that's what we're optimizing for, we got to optimize for the consumer and we need people to optimize for that and be advocates of it. Absolutely. So one of the things that I think is important too is we talked about the crash relative to sugar, but how long does caffeine actually stay in your system? So it's a couple hours actually. It's really? maybe six to seven hours because caffeine has a half-life of three on the high side, it's more like five hours. So that's how much it, time it takes for half of that dose to leave your body. So my problem with drinks that have a lot of caffeine is that let's say you have it at 3 p.m., which is the hour most of us have our energy crash, right? So if you have a drink at 3 p.m. with 300 milligrams of caffeine, then it's basically the equivalent of having two cups of coffee at 10 p.m., because that's how much caffeine is left in your body. If you wouldn't have two cups of coffee at 10 p.m., you shouldn't have an energy drink or a coffee with 300 milligrams at three. That's just how long it takes caffeine to leave your body. So yeah, it's like six to seven hours. So it's a math equation. It's a math equation. So if our listeners to go, like, if at this time, like, what time do I want to go to bed? Yes. Right? And how much of X drink will be left in my system yes. at that point in time? So math is not my strong suit. As much as a scientist as I am, <laughs> math is really tricky. And even it's funny because people always talk about the half-life of caffeine, but I, I don't know what happened. Like we don't talk about the full life. Right? I'm familiar with the half-life too, right? Yeah. Because this is what, it's all drugs. They're like, this yes. is how long it lasts in your system. Exactly. The LD50 and then the half-life. So it's not like, this is how long it takes for 100% of caffeine to leave your body. I don't know. We just don't talk about that. But the math that I do when I'm making choices for myself, and the math I recommend for your listeners is, one, look at how much caffeine is on the label and divide that number by two and say, in three hours, this is how much caffeine I'm going to have. Would I drink something with this much caffeine, like the X divided by two? Would I drink something with this at th- three hours from now? It's easier to write it down. It's kind of hard to talk through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the other thing with that is caffeine isn't instantaneous, right? In terms of its effects. 
the placebo effect is right away, but it takes like 20 minutes to kick in because even though it does cross the blood brain barrier, it takes a good 15 minutes to get to your small intestine where it's absorbed. And some of it, a lot of it is absorbed through your stomach, but still it takes time for that caffeine to get through your GI tract to where it's absorbed. And then from where it gets absorbed to go to your brain and your liver and all the places it has an effect. So, I just imagine like your brain kicking off, like ready all systems. Here comes the caffeine. And like everybody, like all the necessary components of your body is like, get ready for it. So the get ready for it is like the instant placebo effect you kind of get. It's like the get ready yeah. for it. It's coming. It's coming. And then it arrives. <laughs> I mean, I honestly feel better when I crack open my caffeinated beverage because it's like, oh, yeah, you hear okay, it. I've got what I need to get through this day. We're good. You know, like just, yeah. just the placebo, just the fact that I'm about to have begin. this right? helps me. This is up. so that like habit loop of like, yes. I don't actually have to have the dopamine hit before my brain's like, send it, send yes. the troops. <laughs> oh, if only our brains could really speak real time. I know. It would be fun and annoying. <laughs> Stop doing that. One of the reasons that I wanted to have you, you know, our listeners hear you is relative to the work you've done and how you've sort of created a framework, a mental framework that people can utilize. And so you actually went ahead and took all of this and wrote a fabulous book, right? Two books. Two books. That's yes. right. What's the first one? The first one, my baby, the one that took the most amount of time to write is called, Are You a Monster or a Rockstar? A Guide to Energy Drinks. And this one is available as an audiobook, which I recommend because I got a comedian to read it. So it's way better. Like all of my dad jokes and my puns, he does a way better job of selling than me. So that's the first book. And that's more about the ingredients in energy drinks, everything from from B vitamins to yerba mate. The second one is more about productivity and fatigue, and it's called How to Get Stuff Done When You Feel Like Poop. <laughs> essentially the title, what paraphrasing without the swear words, yeah. <laughs> when things hit the fan, this is yes. what you read. <laughs> yes. Which I like because you're, you're talking to people who are like in fatiguing environments, generally using caffeine to get amped up and you're kind of maintaining the ability to be productive while being fatigued yes. or how to navigate all of those. Exactly. Scenarios. Cause the first book is more about like, all right, can you eat this? Is this safe? The second book is more like, all right, I'm exhausted. What do I eat? Like it's right. not so much about safety as about like, how do I get through this day? Because I've had three hours of sleep for the last three days. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we talk about this a lot relative to, I mean, a lot of people in tech when they're using their brain and you don't think about the way in which your brain is using energy, you know, and then when you start off tired and the cognitive load, right? And I mean, sometimes it's like by noon or 10. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the stereotype is stay up all night, drink Red Bulls, drink Mountain Dew, drink Cokes, or, you know, be at the office, fridge full of X, whatever X might be, could be bang. I don't know. Everybody's hanging out in coffee room. Yeah, the stereotype is that, like massive amounts of coffee, fuel them and fuel them being the, the troops, the people doing the work, you know, with caffeine essentially. And then obviously learning from this conversation in many cases, it's really the sidecars, the sugars, the creatines, the other things that you really don't, you know, that have these negative effects. It's like that's the stereotype though. It's like fuel them with these drinks, these energy things, and they will just go. But at some point that just go ends and people crash. 
and usually at least a burnout fatigue or just straight up just done. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it this way, and this is kind of the thesis of my second book, even people who've had a full night's sleep or all the caffeine they could possibly want can still feel mentally overwhelmed or physically exhausted. Right. So it doesn't necessarily mean you need caffeine if you're tired, but maybe caffeine will help you when you are. Yes. It's knowing how much caffeine to have at what point and at what point to try other things. So you created a sort of pyramid, right? Relative to um, caffeine (laughs) consumption to help people go, well, what stage am I at? Can you tell our listeners more about that? I would love to. This is called the five levels of fatigue. And it's a pyramid with level zero at the bottom of the pyramid and level five at the tippy tippy top. And so the reason I made it a pyramid is because if you think about the X axis, that is your productivity. So the base of the pyramid is very wide. That's how alert and engaged and and excited you feel about life. And as you get up to the tippy top, the X axis, the tippy top of the pyramid is very, very small. That's because when you get all the way to fatigue level five of five, your productivity is very low. So with each level, with each level of fatigue, there's different symptoms you might feel. So for example, fatigue level one is commonly associated with dehydration and drowsiness. So if you're doing something that's boring and repetitive, or if you're doing something that you haven't had enough water recently, you can feel tired, but caffeine is not the solution. You might need water. You might need to get up. You might need to take a little break and change what you're doing. Caffeine is not the solution for fatigue level one because your fatigue is coming from boredom and dehydration. At fatigue level two, you're feeling more tired and you might need some caffeine, but not a lot of it. You feel a little distracted. You feel a little lethargic. So you just need a little bit of caffeine or you need someone to make you laugh. You might need something to to boost that dopamine in other ways than caffeine. The next level up from that is when you're really stressed out and struggling. That's fatigue level three. So you need more caffeine at this point. And I've got different recommendations in the book. But at fatigue level three, because that level is also associated with stress, there's other things you can do to reduce your stress. At fatigue level three, because that level is associated with stress, one of the things that you can do is just to get started. Sometimes we have this stress because we've got 20 million things on our to-do list. But if you just get started, sometimes that momentum can carry you through and you feel less stressed because you're actually moving forward. You're actually doing something. Level four is when you're exhausted. At this point, you have the strongest amount of caffeine that you can. You have 400 milligrams, which is all you're allowed to have in a day. (laughs) And you need to start easing up. You need to start delegating. You need to start admitting that you are in an energy emergency and you won't be able to do everything you you planned. You need to be comfortable with letting someone down because it's like that point in the airplane before you crash. You need to put your mask on before you help someone else, right? Fatigue level four is that point. You need to help yourself because you can't pour from an empty cup. And fatigue level five of five is zombieville. There is no amount of caffeine that will help you at fatigue level five. So you just need Z's. You just need sleep. You just need to go to sleep. Mm. Yes. Right? So this is helpful in terms of recognizing, like, because I don't know how many people 
like do a sort of assessment or self-reflection around how they're feeling unless they're focused on it, right? And talk a lot about, you know, we feed whatever we focus on. And that I think like even in changing habits, you know, recognizing, oh my goodness, you know, at 2.30 every day is when I go to the snack machine or that's when I'm like, give me my latte to have this sort of template to go, well, maybe I'm really just, you know, tired or I'm a little stressed because the end of the day is coming. I really want to clock out and check out, but I can't yet. And so what other tools or options are available to me instead of what I've always done? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You said it perfectly because it's really, like you said, you feed what you focus on. And mindfulness is such a huge point of this, that even if you did nothing else other than taking a second to assess how tired you are, that awareness has huge payoffs. So even if nothing else comes from it, if you don't do any of those actions, you know, in terms of like finding a chance to walk around, get a drink of water, even if you do nothing else other than say, hmm, I'm at fatigue level three right now, that mindfulness can sometimes help you realize where you are and it can help you take a pause point before you decide your next steps. Yeah. Well, if you were on a bridge, right? You couldn't, and you can only go two directions. You can't go four directions, right? So this is keying off your mindfulness. Like you can't go certain directions. So knowing where you're at in terms of like this pyramid, for example, knowing where you're at, this mindfulness is going to give you an indication of what to do. Yes, absolutely. Right? And so often do we just not be grounded and think like, okay, where am I at? What am I feeling? Why am I feeling this way? And how do I get to where I'm trying to actually go versus like just keep running that durable wheel thing you know like you just never get to where you're trying to go because all directions are no direction work smarter not harder right right i love this when we we posed this question to our community over in slack about how they've used caffeine and i loved it because somebody said i used to use coffee for its utility i.e focus and keeping me awake but then i ended up having to quit it cold turkey for a year and they said i replaced the keeping me awake utility by actually going to bed earlier. <laughs> yes, if you can, then sleep is a great substitute. It's a great alternative to more caffeine. Mm-hmm. Right. But so I think that, you know, we all have different indicator lights, mm-hmm. but recognizing sort of what these are when they emerge so that you can learn to do differently because it's sort of like I need to actually be more thoughtful instead of like, you know, that habit loop, like I say, ground fault interrupt, there needs to be that hiccup to go, oh, wait a second. Like every time I'm tired, I go reach for a coffee and like, maybe I don't really need it or I just really like it. And so for the consumer who goes, well, I really just enjoy coffee or I enjoy my energy drinks. You know, how do I have it while managing the caffeine intake associated with it? Do I mix it up? you know, because I just like the taste or the flavor or the contents, or do I just exercise self-restraint? Well, what I like to do is I mix it up all the time, but then I also take like multiple days to finish an energy drink. So if I like the taste, but I don't need the whole container's worth of caffeine, then I'll have a few sips. I'll get my dopamine boost. I'll get, you know, my reward triggered and then I'll put the rest of it in the refrigerator and I'll have that the next day. Awesome. So that's a good way to get some of the benefits, the mental 
benefits without having too much caffeine. Moderation. Right. Moderation and also being strategic. So if I'm this yeah. tired, I know I need this drink. If I'm this tired, I know I need a weaker drink. It's a proportionate response. But I think there can also be a lot of play involved in that and fun, right? To be yes. like, hmm, let me go and be my own scientist and figure out what works using these sort of levels and go, did I like that? Would I try again? I mean, part of how you've done some of the research is not only the science behind it, but you've tried these, haven't you? Oh, yes. Many of the energy drinks. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I research the labels, but then I also try them myself. Then I do some diligence in terms of the companies. Like if it's somebody that just mailed me an energy drink, I'm very cautious about, okay, who's making this? How much can I trust them based on their website or their quality of their marketing materials? So I'm testing them in all different aspects, not just tasting them and not just reading about them, but all levels of of research going on. So can we shift gears and do a little quiz, true or false, fact or fiction? What do you think? Yes, I would love that. (laughs) Okay. And so we've sort of talked about these, but I, I just think it would be a fun little blast and feel free to like pull in research or tell us sort of how we can better understand these. So true or false, caffeine is not safe. False. (laughs) Well, this is hard. It's not safe if you have more than 400 milligrams in a day. Awesome. And then is there also a little caveat relative to if people have heart conditions? Yes. I mean, if you're sensitive to caffeine, whether or not you're pregnant, whether or not you're a, a child or an adolescent, whether or not you've got heart issues, like you want to be your own scientist. You want to be very careful about how much caffeine you have. But for the average population, caffeine is supposed to be safe in moderation. And that moderation is that 400 milligrams per day. Okay. True or false? Caffeine is addicting. I'm going to say, oh gosh, this is a hard one. I'm going to say true because of its addiction in different ways. Like not the neurochemical ways, but addicting in that it's like comfort food. So you become attached to it the same way I listen to same. I'm addicted to a certain song during stressful days. It's addicting in that way. Okay. So true or false, consuming caffeine can cause heart problems. False. Did you know that 300 milligrams or less can actually reduce your risk of heart arrhythmia? No. And so arrhythmia is dysregulation in the heartbeat, Yes. right? So actually caffeine can help your heart as long as you stay under 300 milligrams. So what about those sort of wonky stories or sort of newscasts we hear about like this person, like I mentioned earlier, it was there ended up in the hospital or had a heart attack because of an energy drink they consumed. Every story that I've ever read, every story that's ever been mailed to me, about someone being hospitalized or dying because of caffeine, they had way more caffeine than they were supposed to. Not just more than this 400 milligrams. We're talking like 25 Red Bulls in a day. Yes. The last one, there was a a man in the UK that survived, but he was hospitalized. He had 25 Red Bulls in a day. And like his conclusion from that is these things shouldn't be sold to children. But like, he's not a child. Like, even if he got his wish, he would still have gotten sick from having 25 Red Bulls in a day. So Mm. that conclusion of his illness was not logical to me. But yes, people that have hospitalizations or die from caffeine, I think there may be one or two that has a genetic predisposition. But everyone that I have seen personally and everyone that I've ever researched and followed up on has had way more caffeine than you're supposed to have in a day. 
Yeah, so I always think about this, and I don't know unless sort of you studied it, recognizing the difference between causing something or something is correlated. Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that. (laughs) Because that's what people think. Like, well, the energy drinks are to blame. They caused it. And it's like, eh, uh, it's never that simple. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And so it's not a direct causation, but it doesn't mean if you're outside the normal limits or there's these other predispositions because of your genetics that it can't create a really poor storm and outcome. Yes, exactly. And the best example of that is caffeine and alcohol. Oh, sorry. Was that one of your next questions? (laughs) No, I was going to say, yes. Right. But keep going. Yeah. I mean, we even talk about that one. We talked about sugars and <laughs> other sidecars, not alcohol, like Red Bull and vodka. I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people or it's been marketed often as a Red Bull and vodka, right? Yes. Like these go together. Yeah. So, yeah. Tell us about like how do, can they go together? Is alcohol OK with caffeine or energy drinks? No, do not mix your uppers and downers. <laughs> right. The problem with mixing caffeine and alcohol is one, it takes the fun out of alcohol. Like I can't speak for everyone, but I drink alcohol to feel like dizzy, like, woo, this is fun. But if you have caffeine, you don't feel that, which I mean, that's the, that's the whole point. So, and that's the problem is that you don't feel drunk. So you feel like you can get into a car. You feel like you're making good judgments, trusting this person you just met. My gosh, oh, yes. Right? <laughs> you feel like you can have three or four or five more shots because you don't feel drunk, but you are. And so the people that have been hospitalized from energy drinks, it's the correlation causation thing. Are they hospitalized because of energy drinks? Are the people that have energy drinks more likely to be in these dangerous situations and be in the hospital? Yeah, I mean, because... One, alcohol makes you feel like you can do anything (laughs) or to some degree, right? Like you can make choices. You can make choices that you wouldn't normally make and they're safe is what I kind of mean by Mm -hmm. that. And then, you know, the caffeine gives you the energy to do so. So normally alcohol alone gives you the ability to make those choices, but usually subdues you because you're like, eh, I'm kind of too tired to do it. (laughs) Right. You know, but the caffeine is like, no, 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 you got the energy. Just go jump. Just go do. Just go drive. It's a great idea. Yeah. You know, yeah, this is a great thing to do. And so you're even yes. more dangerous. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. It's just cringeworthy to me. Like, oh, it makes me shudder on the inside. Because I actually, I think, wasn't in some, one of the things you wrote or have talked about on other occasions was, I think, actually, for a college student out of somewhere here in Washington. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So, In 2009, there was a student from Central Washington University that was hospitalized with a blood alcohol content of 0.35. 0. 0.35. 0. 0.35. 0. 0.30 is lethal. So they were above that. And the reason they were above that is because they had this drink, which thankfully is no longer around in its original formula, for loco, aka blackout in a can. Oh, yes. Heard about it. Yeah. <laughs> so the problem with Four Loco is it was giving you way too much alcohol and way too much caffeine all in one nice little package. And so oh. people that would have one can had enough alcohol to black out. But that's the problem. When you just have alcohol, your body has this safety mechanism where it says like, okay, go to sleep. You're, you're done. You're done. Just, just stop. Just stop. 
When you right? have caffeine, it overrides that safety mechanism. So you can stay awake and keep causing chaos internally and externally. So that's what happened to these college students, and specifically this one that was admitted to the hospital, that kind of shed the light on the dangers of Four Loco that had been happening for at least a year before this incident at Central Washington University. <laughs> oh, that's just so terrifying, right? And going, yes. you know, I think education and teaching people, and especially, you know, when consuming alcohol, when your frontal lobe doesn't work the same way, yes, right, as a result to be able to go, you know, how do we learn to make wise choices and enjoy our lives, but still have guardrails, right? <laughs> yeah. This is why on freeways and cliffs, they're legitimately, literally, our guardrails <laughs> to keep us <laughs> On path if anything goes awry. Yes. That's right. And so one last, going back to our quiz, then consuming caffeine leads to dehydration. True or false? False. False? Surprisingly. So caffeine's diuretic effect is very, very weak, meaning caffeine will only make you have to pee if one of three things is true. One, if you have more than three cups of coffee like more than 250 milligrams of caffeine, then it will make you have to pee. Two, if you've had enough liquid, so for example, if you drink, I don't know, 16, 24 ounces of liquid, you'll have to pee whether or not it has caffeine in it. And then the third thing, if you're not a regular caffeine consumer, if this is the first time in a while or the first time ever that you've had caffeine, then it's more likely to trigger your kidneys to make you feel like you have to pee. Otherwise, if it's not a lot of liquid, if it's not a lot of caffeine, and if it's not your first time having caffeine, you won't have to pee. It won't make you dehydrated. See, I think that is one of the most common misconceptions relative, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Don't you agree? It's very common. Adam, too? <laughs> well, it's a natural, they, the, in quotes, they say it's a natural diuretic, which is true, but to a certain degree, based on yes. what you're saying. Right? So it is a diuretic. It's like saying chemicals are poison. Like everything is poison at the wrong dose, right? Like too much water can kill you because you can drown. Yes, right. So if you have a normal dose, like if you have as much caffeine as you're supposed to, you're fine. Mm. So how does it work? And why is it that many people often have to not just, you know, go number one, but number two? Because I think this is really interesting. And I want our listeners. Come on. I know. <laughs> We're going we're going there. We're, we're going there. We, as as we should. It's important. It's a regular question that I get. But um bum. <laughs> I can't speak to number two as well because that has more to do with the chemicals that are in coffee. Like I think there's caffeic acid and some other antioxidants and nutrients in coffee that kind of trigger that impulse to go number two. But with number one, a lot of times the drinks that people are having are workout supplements or they're having large cups of coffee that have a large enough amount of caffeine to trigger that response in the kidneys. It has to do with your glomerular filtration rate. So it doesn't change the amount of water your body is producing, but it changes how salty that water is. And so because it's more concentrated, the water that's in your kidney feels more salty and feels more concentrated, you have a greater desire to pee because of that high concentration. So that's mm -hmm. what's happening. So is there anything, because something I read was more relative to the way in which it relaxes your muscles, hence why you would be more prone because, Ooh. right, as sort of, 
it lets, I mean, hence we can, it, it seems counter sort of um, intuitive to some degree that caffeine is a stimulant, right? But it actually relaxes the muscles of your intestines, which makes you go. That makes sense. I feel like that's one of those things that's a good theory, but like, how do you measure it in a research <laughs> setting? Because yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Caffeine is a vasodilator. It, it widens your blood vessels. So that totally makes sense. So one of the things I want to, because, you know, I'm going to take a hard left now sure. and talk about caffeine relative to mental health. Oh, yes. Because I think, right, that this is something really important for our listeners to understand, because in my line of work, I see oftentimes people struggle with, well, they already are coming to me for one issue or another, but in the case of anxiety, that caffeine can be a sort of mixed bag and potentially not helpful when it comes to anxiety. Like it's it's a stimulant. So the jitters that you were talking about from caffeine consumption are like amplify that experience. I'm glad you asked about that because I have in my notebook here like five different research papers that I was looking at before this that I wanted to talk about. But the one that's most applicable and I think the strongest one in terms of evidence, are you familiar with POMS, the profile of mood states? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the paper that I love the most and the paper that I'm going to refer to now is a systematic review that was done in 2017 that looked at the safety of caffeine across like all ages and all demographics. It's a very, very comprehensive study. It's like 36 pages. But one of the things that they looked at was caffeine and your profile of mood states. So caffeine and anxiety, caffeine and depression, et cetera. They found that caffeine only increases your anxiety when you have larger doses than your one day's amount. So there was six different studies that looked at whether or not caffeine gave people more anxiety. And the only studies that did find that association were the studies that use caffeine in large doses. All the other ones, if they use caffeine in small doses, no correlation with anxiety. Mm. So you're talking large doses like over 200, 250 milligrams? Yes. I mean, for sure, when you get over 400, but if you go over 200, 250, then yes, there's a greater risk. Even in a single dose too, right? Because yes. I mean, that's, Mary, I was sad to hear that I sold my espresso machine. She's like, what? How did you do that? <laughs> well, I, you know, I was my own scientist. I determined that, well, when I drink espresso, when I make even an Americano, which is generally just, you know, a shot or a double shot of espresso, plus the rest is water essentially, not even like any sugars or monk fruit or stevia, just simply that, like I would be off to the races. And if I had two, it was clear that I <laughs> yeah. had two. One was enough, but two was like, I realized that that brew method just had, must have, I didn't measure it. I can determine it based on how I felt that it had more for sure caffeine in it. My assumption is now based on you saying this is it definitely had more than 200, is it milligrams for caffeine? Right. So more than 200 milligrams of caffeine because I could tell for sure just on one cup. And a regular cup of coffee, you'd be fine. Right. Like if I do a French press or I do pour overs, AeroPress, I got a couple of different brew methods that I'd prefer. So, you know, espresso was fun. My son would help me make the coffee. He loved to tamp it with me. You know, we would, you know, grind the beans. It was a, a fun thing we did in the morning. So he would help me make my coffee. Loves that. He still helps me, but just now it's not with the espresso machine. Now it's just with pour over or, 
you know, French press. And none of those methods ever made me feel like even if I had three cups, like I was going to burst through the walls. Whereas my espresso machine loved it. I loved the coffee from it, but not the feeling I got by drinking it. So, you know, with that, again, going back to our Slack community, somebody else commented, and I wonder if you could shed some light on this, Danielle, relative to, they said sometimes they have an espresso and it wakes them up, but other times they have an espresso and it just puts them to sleep. Yeah. Ooh, that's tricky. So my gut instinct in that scenario would be that they're either fatigue level five in those situations and maybe the espresso isn't working because they're already mentally exhausted or physically exhausted. Yeah. So the caffeine isn't capable of waking you up physically. And even the placebo effect of like, yay, this is my espresso might not even be working. But I mean, I've also met people that have cups of coffee right before they go to bed and they're fine. Usually those people have a consistent effect. It's not, it affects them good one way and affects them a different way on a different day. So usually, I don't know, usually it's consistent. So my, my gut instinct would be that if you are getting a different effect between different days, it's because some days you're just more drained, more exhausted. So with that then too, we also asked about relative to COVID because, right, lots of things have changed for people with the COVID lifestyle. And so, you know, the coffee intake increasing <laughs> during COVID, which, you know, I don't know. I might think about it being relative to a number of different things, like being one, I want more comfort (laughs) amidst the stress and strain, but two, just more access, right? Like less distance to walk or sort of it's more easily accessible. But, you know, what might you say, you know, to that person of going, well, it's probably doubled, you know, or I'm taking in way more coffee now that I'm my work situation has changed. Yes. I mean, I've seen this across all different industries from first responders that are being shipped cases of caffeine products to their hospital, as well as the parents that now have to manage a job and their child and their pet or whatever else, you know, they were managing before. So caffeine intake has increased for everyone throughout this COVID crisis. And I think we're going to be seeing some effects of that in maybe five years. For example, how many products come out in the next three to five years with even higher amounts of caffeine? How close are we going to get to that dangerous like amount of your whole day's worth of caffeine in one teeny little can because people have built up their tolerance of caffeine during the COVID crisis? Mm. So that was the other thing. Like, I was surprised because you know, I mean, I think most of us know that there's caffeine in chocolate, but there's other foods that have caffeine in it as well. And that according to what I found, the FDA, so here in the U.S., they don't actually have to label it unless they're adding yes. more caffeine. Yes. Right? Yes. So to some degree, you can't wholly know with some of the foods. But can you tell our listeners, like, what other common foods do that people eat might have caffeine in it? Honestly, unless it's a food that has added caffeine, you don't have to worry about any other foods other than chocolate. I think chocolate, dark chocolate and aspirin are like the most common objects that people don't think about as caffeinated that do have caffeine in them. Yeah. Like how much caffeine is typically in aspirin? Like 
Excedrin, Tylenol? I think it's 45 milligrams. I would recommend double checking this on Caffeine Informer. Again, this is like my Bible. Caffeine Informer has all the answers. But yeah, I mean, it's not small. It's like 45 milligrams in Excedrin, like uh, what's Excedrin Max, Maximum, the Ultra Strength Excedrin. And then with chocolate, I think one full dark chocolate Hershey's bar has a bit lower than that. I want to say it's around 30 milligrams. So like a cup of tea, right? So if you're eating one of those a day and like three coffees-ish, <laughs> check yourself. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. Otherwise, maybe cool. But there's more and more food now that comes out with added caffeine. There's a cookie that I like, a protein cookie from Beast Cookie Company that has 160 milligrams. So a cup of coffee and a half, like one and a half cups of coffee into this cookie. But it's this large protein cookie with 10 grams of protein and not that many grams of sugar. So that's kind of what I'm seeing increase more in the marketplace in terms of foods that your consumers, that your listeners might need to be aware of. It's becoming more trendy to add caffeine into foods where it wouldn't normally be. So like protein bars and cookies. What's driving the trend? Is it, is productivity driving the trend or is it, uh, you you say consumers create the habits because- you mentioned before what you desired to put in in terms of caffeine wasn't what the consumer wanted. So somebody's wanting a cookie that makes them more alert. People want caffeine. They want alternatives to the scary, stereotypical energy drink. So other product developers are saying, hey, what if I could give you this healthy cereal bar with your cup of coffee's worth of caffeine in here? Yeah, then you could just drink some water and have this cookie that's mostly healthy in the morning versus – the cup of coffee. So it's just change. It's it's moving things around a bit. Yes. I like that. I mean, that's good, though. I think we need alternatives because not everybody wants the cup of coffee. As you said before, like you drank energy drinks. That was your saving grace rather than actual yes. coffee, you know, and that's what you're going to see other people do is like I would prefer to drink to eat a bar or eat a cookie or something like that versus drink this nasty drink or go through this five minute process to make French press you know, at home. I don't want that. You know, they want alternatives. So Marielle, going back to your point, this is what I'm seeing a huge spike in because of COVID. All of these companies that were kind of unknown before are like, hey, look at us. We've donated all these coffees or all these chocolates or all these cookies with caffeine to these hospitals. And they're getting that brand recognition. And they're probably attracting a lot more customers because they're providing this caffeinated product, not always a liquid, to people in desperate need of caffeine to get them through their extra long, extra stressful hours during this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But see, and and I think that's so hard because I know just when we're tired too, we make different decisions than when we're alert. Absolutely. Right? What was the acronym you mentioned before, Mary, about the, are you hungry, tired? Oh, HALT. Right? HALT. Yeah. Hungry, Hungry, angry, lonely, lonely, tired. tired. I've got to memorize. I mean, I've, I've like systematically improved my life because of halt. Yeah, but it's really getting at energy. And so recognizing that like energy is always in flux, right? Emotions are energy and going, you know, I I think of, you know, ways in which people are taxed emotionally feels more like when you wake up the next day, you feel like you were hit by a Mack truck, except you don't remember it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But it's this totally different experience of fatigue. And we talk so often with our listeners about the value of name it to tame it. 
Yes. And that building this repertoire of vocabulary helps us to navigate our lives differently. And so hopefully even in this, people can recognize and have different words around their state of energy Mm -hmm. to then make different choices in that regard. Absolutely. I mean, if you take that three seconds to assess, all right, I'm at fatigue level three, maybe I should pause before I say things out loud because I'm going to say something I regret. I'm more likely to say something I regret right now because I know I'm at fatigue level three. Sure. And like, I think that in general, people are getting there faster because of the, you know, load just with multiple demands and the rate of change. Yes. Right? Like there is so much accommodating and it's like Garmin, right? Recalculating, recalculating, <laughs> yes. recalculating. And that that's going to deplete our energy stores. And so if you know that, then you can be like, okay, I literally just need to take a nap for like 15 minutes or let me go, you know, move a little bit, do some walking. I mean, I find it somewhat humorous in looking at my stats to my movement level or walking <laughs> that I used to do like in months previous. And, you know, while I would like to improve that, like life right now is not facilitating <laughs> that in the way that I want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to be very purposeful now for your movement. Whereas before it sort of came natural because we were moving around a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. So, Danielle, can I ask, like, where can people find you? Where can people get access and and tell us, like, what can you offer to our listeners? So I love speaking in front of groups. And that's slowed down a little bit because people obviously aren't meeting in person. But I still love doing Zoom calls. And I do a lot of conferences and workshops helping people address their caffeine questions as well as the different levels of fatigue. So one of the things I offer is a caffeine and fatigue workshop. You can find all of the details about that at fivelevelsoffatigue.com. That's five, the number, fivelevelsoffatigue.com. There you can find all of the details about the different speaking and the different workshops that I do. Other than that, I love being on Instagram. I find the people on Instagram are are very engaging, and I get to speak to a lot of first responders and nurses on Instagram, and I love talking to that group. So I would say find me on Instagram. I'm at Green Eyed Guide. And there's the, <laughs> the third thing I will say. My website is greeneyedguide.com, which is where you can learn more about my books, and there's a lot more information on there about different energy drinks I've reviewed. So you can find a lot of content about popular energy drinks, ingredients, and safety on greeneyedguide.com. Awesome. We are so thankful for you coming on and talking to our listeners. And so if you could give our listeners like one quick takeaway to how they can navigate caffeine differently or a question they can ask themselves what would you leave them with? I would say always, always, always read your labels. Always nurse your caffeine and always ask yourself, do I really need caffeine or can I take a break? Can I do something else to help my mind and my energy right now? And there you have it. Danielle Rath, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that was a long show, and I'm glad you stuck it out. If you listen to this, you definitely enjoyed this awesome show. And it was a first for us, as I mentioned, 
We hadn't had an expert on the show yet, but we plan to do this at least once a month. You can share your thoughts on this episode at changelog.com slash brain science slash 25. This is episode 25. Or head to the show notes and click discuss on changelog news. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, thank you to Linode, Rollbar, and Fastly, our partners who get it. Also to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our awesome beats. And if this is your first time listening to Brain Science, please subscribe. That'd be awesome. You can search in your favorite podcast app and subscribe, or you can subscribe to all of our podcasts. We have Brain Science and many of the shows. Find them at changelaw.com slash podcasts or subscribe to the master feed at changelaw.com slash master. It's one feed with all of our podcasts, so you get everything in that single feed. Thanks again for tuning in this week. We'll see you next week. Thank you.